If you'll find your place with me this morning in your Bible at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 10 uh, through verse 17. We began a new series of messages last week called Dear Paul. It's about Paul's advice that he's giving to this church, this Corinthian church, sort of like a Dear Abby column, or if you will, an Ask Ann Landers column. Though this is not human advice, this is divine advice, and I want you to be able to see this. We're going to be talking about a lot of things that, uh, through the course of this series that are very, very relevant. All of them are relevant, but they're going to be extremely relevant to things that we're dealing with in our own modern culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul is writing and he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I, say to you, now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized in the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words, a wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the beautiful music this morning, the praise team, uh, the band that plays, everyone who was singing and participating, Lord, lifting our voices and giving you glory and honor. I thank you that we have that privilege every Sunday to gather like this. There are places in the world where they don't have the opportunity to freely gather as we do, to be able to sing your praises. And even so, they still gather even with the threats that surround them. Lord, we shouldn't take lightly the privileges that you've given to us. Today, Lord, we continue talking from this particular passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 about the subject of unity. Last week we talked about preferences and styles and not letting those things divide us. Today we're going to talk about unity around something even more serious and significant. And I pray, Lord, that you'll guide us into your word now. Help us to see the truth that you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The city of Corinth was like a lot of the modern cities of our day. It was a cosmopolitan kind of a city. It was very diverse in its population. It was pluralistic in its approach. It was the center of trade and commerce. Consequently, there was a lot of wealth that was in this city. There was a banking system in this city that only enhanced the wealth. But alongside of all of those kinds of things, the port city being a place where trade and uh, commerce coming in and out, it, it was also a place where there were a lot of different temples a lot of different gods were being worshipped, false gods, little g gods, but there are a lot of gods that were being worshipped in the city, and that led to some syncretistic beliefs where 
you know, people pick up this from this religion and that from that religion and this from that religion and they blend them all together and they make their own kind of religion. Uh, uh, Primary amongst all of these other gods that were there and that were worshipped there was Aphrodite, the temple of Aphrodite that was there, the goddess of fertility, the goddess of love, the thousand prostitutes that worked around that temple as a part of the worship to this false god. In this city, they had the Isthmian Games. It's a smaller version of uh, the Olympic Games, but it included more than sports. It included things like drama and music and oratory. All of these things made up this very busy very cosmopolitan feeling city. And so you can imagine when the Apostle Paul comes to this city and he begins preaching the gospel, first at the synagogue and then uh, to, in a house next door to the synagogue, and people start coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and start being born into the family of God, you can imagine people coming from all these different backgrounds, how difficult that would be sometimes in order to blend them together into unity. And yet Paul spent 18 months preaching the gospel, discipling these people, organizing in, in this church and getting it moving in, in a positive direction. But there were problems that arose. After Paul left the city, there was division that began to grow. And Paul began to hear word of this. He's now in Ephesus, and he begins to hear word of some of these problems that are happening. In addition, he's received a letter from some of the elders of the church at Corinth that has questions. You know, what do we do about this? This is going on. How do we handle this? And so Paul sits down and he writes this letter. I don't mean he did it on his own will. He did it under the inspiration of God. But he sits down and he writes this letter. And he addresses these things that he's been hearing about, and he addresses these questions that have been asked. And the very first thing that he has to deal with is the subject of disunity in the congregation. If they don't deal with the disunity, they're going to, they're going to splinter into oblivion. Now, you and I are familiar with churches that have splintered into oblivion over the course of years, right? I think about my own home church where I grew up when I was saved, called to the ministry, served as a youth pastor for five years. It was one time a thriving church, a uh, thousand to twelve hundred people every Sunday, a bus ministry that went out every week and picked up boys and girls and adults and brought them to church, uh, a school of over 700, approximately 700 students in the school. I mean, it was, a, it was a happening place. It was a vibrant place. There was a lot of life about that place. Our pastor left after 20 years, 28 years of ministry there. Somebody came behind him who was virtually a clone of the man who had been there for 28 years. But over the course of time, they splintered amongst themselves. And when I go home today, the church no longer even exists. There is no church by that name anymore. And you can go across this country and you can find many places that that are like that where they get so divided amongst themselves, they splinter into oblivion. And some of that's because of the difficulty of getting people to blend together and to come together in the matter of unity. I mean, some of the people in Corinth had come out of utterly pagan backgrounds. Others of them had come out of these half-Jewish pagan backgrounds. In other words, they were a mixed race of people, but they still had picked up the pagan ways of, of the Roman world. Others of them were Jews who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus and who held Uh, very highly, the law of Moses and the way of God. 
there were poor members in the congregation and there were rich members in the congregation. There weren't very many rich members in this congregation, very many of the elite body of people in that society. There was a whole lot of those who had been slaves at one time and they had been set free. They were freemen. Uh, they, were, they were people who uh, were still working as slaves uh, to people in the Roman world. And they came out of that poverty kind of a background. There was very little of a middle class, very little middle class. You were either the upper echelon or you were the lower class of society. And bringing those together, people coming to faith in Jesus and coming into a church together resulted in all kinds of challenges of getting people to understand that you've got to come together in unity as a body. If the church is going to be effective in the world in which we live, we've got to be in unity. By the way, that's true for your family. If a husband and wife are not in unity, it's going to be disruptive to their children. If a business is not in unity in the leadership of that company, it'll be disruptive throughout the rest of that company. These are principles and truths that are, that are applicable anywhere. There has to be unity if there's going to be success. If there's not unity, if there's disunity, it'll end up splintering into oblivion. A house, Jesus said, divided against itself, what? Cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And so these converts to Christianity in Corinth, they came into this community of faith holding on to some of the hostility that they felt toward others, the suspicion that they had of others. There were misunderstandings that arose because there were differences of race and class and gender. And I don't mean multiple genders. I mean men and women. Because of the differences of genders. The Greco-Roman world especially loved people who were great orators. They loved people who were philosophical, who could stand before you and they could argue with you philosophically and make it sound so beautiful when they said it. They, they loved listening to those kinds of individuals and they would divide up and become disciples of those kinds of philosophers. I mean, these were the people that looked beautiful and they spoke beautifully. And they would divide up over following these individuals. And a lot of that spirit of the world had crept right into the Corinthian church. And isn't it a shame when the church ceases to be the light in the midst of the darkness and the darkness begins to extinguish the light in the church? Isn't it, isn't it sad when the church is supposed to be a body in unity with one another, becomes divided like the world, and the division of the world becomes a part of the church, and we become partisan, and we become uh, people who are sloganeering, and we're out here involved in you know, factionalism? Isn't it sad when, when we see churches divided up in that fashion? And so the very first problem that Paul addresses is the problem of the disunity that these Corinthian believers are dealing with. If they don't deal with this disunity, they're going to splinter into oblivion. And there, there virtually won't be a church left in the city of Corinth. They've got to come together. And what were they divided over? They were divided over personalities and over styles. Some said they're of Paul, and others said they're of, of Apollos, and others said they're of Cephas. You can understand why some would have an affinity for Paul. 
Paul was the founding pastor. He's the one who came and won many of them to Jesus Christ. He's the one who came and said, we've been set free from the law of Moses. But when Paul left, Apollos came in, and Apollos was that silver-tongued orator. He was like a lot of the Greco-Roman philosophers who was able to stand before people and have them sitting on the edge of their seats, you know, like you're doing right now, sitting on the edge of their seats, listening to every word that fell from his lips, just trying to pay attention because they didn't want to miss anything that he had to say. And some said they're of Cephas. I imagine that some of those were probably Jewish in their background. They still had an affinity. There was a little bit, Paul went a little too far, they might have felt. And Apollos was too much like the Greco-Roman world. And in their Jewishness, you know, they were more comfortable with Cephas. That was his Aramaic name. They were more comfortable with Peter. And so they had divided up over personalities and over styles. Boy, we like the way Paul goes about his ministry. We like his style. We like his personality. We like Apollos. We like Cephas. They divided up into, into cliques. And they were, they were arguing. It wasn't just a matter of they differed as to who they liked to hear best. You know, those kinds of preferences are inevitable that are going to happen in the course of, you know, living out our Christian lives. They had started arguing with each other and fighting with each other like they were politicking for their particular favorite man. And mind you, it was not over doctrine. Paul doesn't say anything about any doctrine that's being compromised. Paul never hesitated to go at in, in confrontational ways at any kind of doctrinal error. You, you read the rest of his epistles. He never hesitated to go at any doctrinal error in a confrontational way. This wasn't about doctrine on this occasion. Uh, this, this wasn't even the men themselves, Paul, Cephas, or Peter, having anything to do with it. They weren't encouraging this division in the congregation. If anything, they would be discouraging this kind of division. But the congregation, out of their own selfishness and out of their own sinfulness, began dividing up amongst themselves, and they got into contentions. That's what verse 11 says. They got into contentions. These were heated debates with one another. Oh, no, no, we can't follow, can't follow Paul. we got to follow Apollos. Oh, no way. I'm not following Apollos. What do you think I am? And they're arguing with each other, and they're fighting with each other. And can you imagine a world looking on? A little bit later, we'll learn that they're taking each other to court. And they're suing each other. <laughs> That's pretty divisive, wouldn't you say? They're taking each other to court and suing each other. But at this moment, he's just acknowledging that this is a church that is in division. This is a church that's been broken up into factions and into cliques. If you've ever been to a church that's cliquish, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And may I just stop here and may I say that from a hospitality point of view... Our church has to work every single moment of every single day of every single service not to be cliquish. We have to make sure that we're reaching out to the people around us, that they're feeling welcomed when they come, that they know that they lo they're loved, that the people around them are not just statues sitting in a pew, but they're real, live, breathing people who actually have a personality and are willing to reach out to those that are around them and shake their hand and learn their names and get to know them and love them and show them the love of Jesus. 
even our church can become cliquish and has at times been cliquish. We can't allow that to occur. Paul is writing to a church that is divided up over these kinds of situations, over this kind of matter. And the result is that they're going to splinter into oblivion if it doesn't end. And so Paul writes and he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's in no way denigrating the importance of baptism. Uh, apparently what was going on is that these people thought the authenticity of their profession was not their profession of faith, was not only indicated by their baptism, but also by the one who did the baptizing. Oh, well, you know, Jeremy baptized me. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the special ones. Uh, the pastor baptized me. Uh, I, I'm one of the specially chosen ones. As if the baptism itself, in and of itself, isn't sufficient enough to identify you with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's got to be the baptism itself plus the one who does the baptizing. Now please don't get upset with me. I understand in families, you know, the pastor baptized my grandchildren. I want them to, they baptized my children. They baptized me and my wife. They baptized my children. I got it backwards. They baptized me and my, he baptized me and my wife. He baptized my children. I want him to baptize my grandchildren. I understand that. But hopefully you're not dividing up over that. You're not, are you? Hopefully you're not dividing up over those kinds of issues. Those kinds of things are insignificant. Who does the, baptiz the baptizing? Is it nearly important as that you obey the Lord and follow him in believer's baptism? Some of you probably need to step forward and you need to say, Lord, I'm going to follow you in believer's baptism. I'm going to identify with Jesus Christ. I'm going to identify with his church. I'm going to declare that I believe the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what saves me from my sins and brings to me eternal life. And failure to be baptized when you know you ought to be baptized is sinning against God. It's the very first step of obedience to the Lord. It's the opportunity for you to declare your allegiance to Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to do that? But whether I baptize or Jeremy baptizes or Bill baptizes or Tim baptizes or Nathan baptizes or Matt baptizes or one of the deacons baptized doesn't really matter, does it? In the long run, all that matters is that you profess your faith in Jesus. But here's a church. You know, well, I was baptized by the Apostle Paul, I, I'm something special. I was baptized by Apollos. Oh, can you imagine such a great man who could speak with such oratorical skills that he would be willing to go into the waters with me and go down into the waters with me? And they ended up being divided amongst themselves. And so Paul goes right at this matter from the very beginning of the letter of the disunity that exists. But where I want us to focus for the next few minutes is back in verse 10. Because he gives three statements here about the unity of this body. Remember, they're divided up at this moment over personalities and over style. I like this personality and I like this style. But I want you to understand that he's interested in the unity of the body as a whole. 
And we want to talk about this kind of unity. You notice verse 10, he says, now I plead with you. The word plead comes from the Greek word that means, means the comforter. It's used for the Holy Spirit. It's actually a word that means to come alongside. He doesn't come hammering them. He comes alongside them. He comes alongside them as family. And he says, listen, family, let's have a, let's have a conversation here together. Let's talk with one another. Y'all ever do those kind of things with your family? You ever have a, a family meeting? You know, you, know uh, you scare the kids to death. You may be telling them you're going to Disney World. <laughs> but you, you scare them that we're having a family meeting tonight. I want everybody to be there. Make sure you're here. Doesn't matter what you got planned. Cancel it. We're all meeting this evening. Dad's going to be here. He's going to be with us in the living room. Seven o'clock. Be on time. Don't miss it. And the kids, <gasps> what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Maybe something very positive. It might not be anything negative at all. But this is a family meeting. Paul says, I'm coming alongside you. I'm not coming to hammer on you. I'm coming alongside you as a part of the family. And I'm telling you, look, look, I want you to understand in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's his authority. I'm coming to you on behalf of the Lord. We got to deal with this disunity. And he makes three statements. He says, first of all, that you all speak the same thing. That you all speak the same thing. What does he mean? Does he mean that we've all got to be programmed like robots, and when we speak, it's like the Stepford Wives. It's a Stepford church where everybody says exactly the same way in exactly the same way. Is that what he's talking about? Um, you know, there are churches today that are confessional churches. I grew up in a church when I was a kid growing up till, I was, till we moved outside the city of Atlanta out to Stockbridge where I was saved at a church a mile from where I live. But in that confessional church, in that church I grew up in every Sunday, every single Sunday, uh, we would stand at a particular portion. It was always in the order of service. There was always an order of service. Y'all don't get an order of service. We keep you guessing. There's always an order of service as to what was coming next. I didn't like the order of service because you could plan, you know, we're almost to the end. I didn't, I didn't like that. But always in the middle of the service, at some point in the service, we would all stand and we would all quote together off the pages of the bulletin in front of us, the Apostles' Creed. There are different creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. There's different creeds. There's nothing necessarily wrong with a creed. As a matter of fact, if you read your New Testament and you pay careful enough attention, you will come to describe or dis discover, I should say, that there are creeds that are written into uh, the, the story of the church. Uh, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in the opening verses, the first six or seven verses are a creed that the early church would repeat that identified what they believed. That's what a creed is about. It's about identifying what you believe. You have to stop and remember, they didn't have a completed New Testament. They had an Old Testament. <clears throat> they didn't have a completed New Testament. They might have had some of the writings of Paul at different times, but they didn't have everything that we have today. How did they pass along their faith? How did they pass along their beliefs? How did they pass along their doctrines? They wrote them into creeds. Those creeds were easily remembered. And then those creeds were repeated but I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, is if some kind of mechanical repetition 
of a group of phrases that identifies who we believe is the real issue that he's talking about. He says that you all speak the same thing. He's not saying we all have to use exactly the same words all the time. He's not saying that we all have to be mechanical in the repetition of a creed, though there's nothing wrong with doing that. If a church does that, he's saying that we have to agree as to the doctrines of the faith, and we have to be in unity, saying the same thing about our purpose, about our mission, about our reason for existence, that we have unity in love, we have unity in doctrine, we have unity in purpose. You, you understand that, that a church to have unity has to be united around doctrine. The, the popular thing today is for churches to diminish doctrine, to lay it aside, to play it into the background, put it in the shadows, don't make much of it, don't say anything about it, don't, every, don't, don't talk about it. Doctrine is, is boring, it's unimportant. Let's not... Let's not, let's not bring it to the forefront. Do you, re you realize that that's a recipe? First of all, that's a recipe for heresy. And second of all, that's a recipe for disaster. When people come to unite with our church, we give them a doctrinal statement. It's what, six or eight pages long, front and back, with all of the scriptures that define exactly what we believe is a congregation. Why? Because we got to be able to say the same thing about what we believe. And here's what's interesting. The Apostle Paul doesn't say here that we have to say the same thing as every other Christian organization that exists in the world. But he says, amongst yourselves in your own congregation, you've all got to be saying the same thing. Amen. You've all got to be in agreement as to the doctrine that unites you. Can you imagine if you were a football player and uh, you were playing on one of these great teams that plays every weekend and somebody from the, the box up above where they're watching the game, you know, all the coaches that are up in the box and they're, they're putting all the statistics down and they're watching every play that's run and they're, they're calling in plays many times from up there in the box down. Can you imagine if the coach up in the box calls in a play and then you've got somebody on the sidelines who's signaling in the plays? I don't know if they still do that. They may have earpieces now, but they signal in the plays. Can you imagine what would happen if the person calling the play in the box called one play and the person on the field signaling in the plays called another play? What would happen to that football team? They'd end up in disarray. They'd end up in disunity, right? Well, what do they call it when a play doesn't go as it's supposed to go? They call it a broken play. You've seen it. Somebody didn't understand the call, what they were supposed to be doing in a given moment. And so the running back was supposed to cross in front of the quarterback, and he was supposed to hand the ball off. But the running back, rather than going in front of the quarterback, went the opposite direction. And it was a broken play. The quarterback runs forward through the center, over the center, trying to make a few yards just to make up for the mess. Or the wide receiver who's supposed to run and turn to the middle of the field but turns to the sideline and the ball hits right out in the middle or it gets intercepted. You know what you have to have if you're going to have a winning football team? You got to have people that know the play and they're all on the same page and they all know where they're supposed to be at a given moment and they're saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. The church has to be able to say the same thing. Our doctrine matters. 
Our doctrine matters. What we believe matters. It matters. I've never had anybody ever do this, so I can say this with a clear conscience and not worry about offending anyone. But if anybody ever comes to me and says, Pastor, can I teach something different than what we believe doctrinally and it's on our doctrinal statement? Let me just give you the advanced answer to that question so you don't have to ask it. The answer, the advanced answer to that question is no. No. We can't have two people calling two different kinds of plays. It creates confusion. It creates division. You can't have one group saying salvation is by grace through faith and another saying that salvation is by grace plus your works. You can't have one group saying it's okay that marriage is between a man and a woman and another group that says marriage is between two men or two women if they'd like for it to be. You can't have one group saying that baptism by immersion is the scriptural teaching and another saying that baptism doesn't really matter. It's form doesn't really matter. You can't have one group saying that Jesus saves anyone who comes to him when he says he loves the whole world. He loves the whole world. And another group saying, no, it's just a select few, just the a, just a, just a frozen chosen, just the ones that God has specifically chosen that he really loves. You can't have that kind of conflict within the body. Do you understand the result of that is what? Confusion. The result of that is disunity. The result of that is people who don't know what we believe. And may I tell you that in a social media world, this is one of the hardest things to deal with possible. Because every one of you has an opinion about what we do and what we don't do. And some of you feel perfectly free to express that opinion when it contradicts what we're doing. And Paul comes and says to this church that you say the same thing. That you say the same thing. God didn't send you to our church to correct our church, to change our doctrinal position into something that you think it ought to be. If that's how you feel about it, you need to find a church that's in agreement with your doctrinal position. But when we come together as a body of believers, we say the same thing thing. We don't have one group teaching that God created in six literal days everything that there is and another group saying that everything evolved into what it's become. That's the recipe for disaster. That's not just personalities. That's not just personalities and style. That's a matter of truth. And he says we ought to say the same thing. You think that's a problem? Go with me back for a moment. Keep your place there, but go with me back for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah 27. Let me show you the disaster of saying different things. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah was given a prophecy. The children of Israel for 490 years had disobeyed God, and they had not observed the year of the Sabbath. That means every seventh year, they were supposed to let the land lay fallow. They weren't supposed to farm it. They were supposed to let it lay fallow. They didn't do it for 490 years. You divide seven into seven, 490, and what do you get? You get 70. God says, for 70 years, because you disobeyed me in this respect, I'm going to send you into captivity, and the land is going to lay fallow. God comes to Jeremiah and says, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And God says, Here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put a yoke, a wooden yoke, on your neck, and I want you to wear it everywhere you go. You're going to be a living illustration 
that when Babylon comes against you, I want you to willingly, willingly put on the wooden yoke. Don't resist them. Don't fight them. If you resist them and you fight them, the result will be they will not only take you into captivity, they will destroy the temple. They will destroy the city. They will burn the city. Don't fight them. Just willingly submit. This is your punishment for 70 years. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you back. You're going to rebuild your temple. You're going to reestablish your land. But for the next 70 years, you put your neck in the yoke. Jeremiah goes to the people, and he's clear that this is the prophecy of God. But you get to verse, uh, chapter 28, and you got, another, you got another prophet. His name is Hananiah. Notice it, verse 28, verse 1. And it happened in the same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month that Hananiah, the son of Azar, the prophet who was from Gibeon. By the way, Gibeon is a place where there's a lot of prophets live. And I want you to notice the influence of this Hananiah. He spoke to me in the house of the Lord. He's able to speak at the temple. In the presence of the priest, the priest listened to this man. He has great influence. And of all the people, all the people that are around are listening to Hananiah. And you know what Hananiah comes and says? Hananiah says, in two years, God's going to release us from the punishment. And you're not, going to have to have, you're not going to have to suffer. There isn't going to be that kind of difficulty that Jeremiah has been predicting and Jeremiah has been saying. Now, if you were the people and you were listening to two well-known uh, prophets, two prophets that are saying two separate things, do you think you'd be confused? And what would you do? You'd do like a lot of Americans do. You do like a lot of Americans do when they hear a mixed message. Let's take the easier of the messages. Let's do the simpler of the things. I mean, after all, if what Jeremiah is saying, we're going to be out there for 70 years, we don't need to worry about it right now. I'd much rather believe what Hananiah has to say because if what Hananiah has to say, we, we, can, we can live it up and enjoy life. We really don't have to worry a whole lot about it. Well, if you look over in chapter 28, verse 10, then Hananiah, the prophet, took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. Here's his prophecy. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Well, God comes to Jeremiah. And notice what he says in verse 13. Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood. That is a yoke of submission, but you have made in their place yokes of iron, inflexible servitude. The result was that Jerusalem was burned, the temple was torn down, the city was destroyed because they listened to Hananiah rather than to Jeremiah. And you know why? Because they had confusion. They were not saying the same thing. You say, but pastor, I, I like to talk about controversial issues. Nothing wrong with that. I like to talk about controversial issues, but I don't teach controversial issues. I don't work to divide amongst people. I don't say things and uh, propound things that I know are going to create controversy and that are debatable issues. I know where our church stands. I, I work toward unity, and so should you. What does the Apostle Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? In that great passage where he says God's given 
apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, uh, you know, for the edifying of the saints, for the building up of the ministry to you all come to the unity of the faith. But do you know what it says just before that? He says, there's one Lord and there's one God and there's one father. He goes through all of these statements. There's one, this, there's one, that there's one, this. He said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith. That's the doctrine Endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith in the bond of peace. You say, God sent me here to disrupt. Please leave. This is who we are. The doctrine we stand on, we're unashamed of. We believe it wholeheartedly. You're not going to convince me of something different. We have to say the same thing. Now look, I'm not asking you to believe me because I said it. I said for you to go get the doctrinal statement, read it for yourself, find out if it's supported by the scripture and see if what we're telling you is the truth. Be like the Bereans. They searched the scriptures to see if the things were so. By the way, when I share my opinion, you can take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. When we share with you the truth of the word of God, we have to take it. He says here to the church that's divided. He says that you speak the same thing. You speak the same thing. Then he says, secondly, that there be no divisions among you. The word divisions literally means to tear. It's used in the Gospels to speak of tearing a piece of fabric. That there be no tears amongst you. I don't mean the kind that you sow and that grow up amongst the wheat. I'm talking about where you rip something. Don't let there be any rips amongst you. Where you're divided against yourself. Where you're, you're living in a political kind of environment within the church. Hey, look. We're going to speak to moral issues. We're going to say what the Bible says about moral issues, whether it's popular or it's unpopular. But this is not about being a Democrat or Republican or an independent. This is about the truth of the Word of God. You follow me? And there's to be no tearing amongst us. One of the great illustrations of what I'm talking about. You remember when Jesus was crucified? They took his garments and they... Divided them up amongst the four soldiers. That's how we know how many soldiers were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Divided his garments up amongst the soldiers except for one piece. That one piece was his tunic. That tunic was an undergarment. Went underneath his outer coat. It went from the shoulders all the way down to the knees. Underneath his outer garment. And when they saw that outer garment, you know what they did? They looked at it and they said, this is too valuable for us to hear, hear it. This is too valuable for us to tear. This is too valuable for us to divide amongst ourselves. This is too costly for us to divide. So what did they do? They cast lots. They cast lots. So who's going to get this piece of very valuable fabric that's been made in one piece? There's no seams in it. It's been made in one piece. We don't want to tear it. Who's going to get it? We're going to cast lots for it. And one of the soldiers wins that piece, of, uh, that piece of, of, of the tunic or that tunic of Jesus that's untorn. Do you realize that in the early church, are you listening to me? In the early church, do you realize that they used that tunic as a symbol of unity?
to take a church and divide a church and to rip a church apart by your own preferences, your own styles, by some pet doctrine that you want to make something that is of greater issue than it should be made in a local assembly, something you want to press because you think it's your right to press and you, you want to get on social media and say it to everybody to create division with as many people as you can. Get as much debate going as you can. You know, we were a lot better when there was no social media and people's thoughts were their own thoughts and they didn't have to look stupid to everybody. It wasn't very nice. I didn't have to look stupid to everybody else. Do you realize that the unity that's to be kept in the bond of peace, endeavor to keep it in the bond of peace, is the seamless garment of Jesus that we should never intentionally tear apart? It's too valuable. It's worth too much. It's too holy. Jesus wore it next to himself. The closest garment that he wore next to his own skin beneath his robe, his outer robe, made of a single piece of material. And the early church says this is a symbol of the unity that we have amongst ourselves. We can't allow ourselves to tear it. Now, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak, that you all, not some of you, that you all speak the same thing. It doesn't mean that we're identical robots just spitting out some kind of mechanical speech, but it means we're saying the same thing about the things that we believe and that there be no tears or rips among you because that's like ripping that garment that was holy and precious and costly that was worn by Jesus next to his skin and then he says he moves from the outward those are all outward things what you say these outward divisions he moves from the outward divisions and notice what he says that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly joined together let's just stop there for a moment the words translated perfectly joined, uh, they're used of a fisherman who's, who's fixing his net, who's mending his net. I mean, what fisherman wants a big hole in his net, right? Right? I mean, when you throw the net out, you, you want to be able to pull the strings and you want it to be able to gather the fish and a whole bunch of the fish or maybe all of the fish escape through the hole in the net. That's where our churches are today throwing out the net, but we've got so much disunity, it's like a tear in the net, and everything that we might catch gets lost in the process because the world looks in and the world says, How, why would I follow a church with that much disunity in their midst? Where they're arguing with each other, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, who don't say the same thing about what they believe, who aren't concerned about the unity and the tearing of that garment that beautiful, holy, costly garment of unity that a congregation is supposed to wear. They would, mend, they would mend their nets so that their nets would be whole. By the way, medical doctors, all you medical doctors, all you medical professionals, they use the word in medicine as well for the setting of a bone. 
so that the bone could be whole. It would heal. You didn't want your arm like this after it healed. They'd set the bone so that the bone would be straight and the bone would heal like it's supposed to heal. You don't want, a, you don't want an arm that's disformed. That you'd be perfectly joined together. Set your arm in place. Sew up the net where the fish are getting out. That you'd be perfectly joined together. Now look, now he moves from the externals to the internals in the same mind and in the same judgment. He talks about the mind. He's not talking just about the brain, the, this, this organ in your head. He's talking about the way you think about things, the thoughts that are going on, so that when you think the same thing, you arrive at the same conclusions. You arrive at the same conclusions. Look back one page in your Bible to Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Look at it. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause, what's the word? Divisions and offenses contrary to the what? To the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. You've got to learn to think about the right things and arrive at the same conclusions. Perfectly joined together in the same mind, the thoughts that you're thinking, and in the same judgment, in the same conclusion, the same conviction about these matters. In other words, he's arguing for the significance of unity. Not uniformity. None of us will ever be uniform. Aren't you thankful that you're not just a clone of me? And I'm thankful I'm not a clone of you. I'm thankful that God made us differently. But when it comes to the body of the church, we cannot let what's happened in 2020 and 2021 and happening in 2022 creep into the church. And we break up into factions and we start sloganeering and we become partisan and sectarian and we say, well, I'm of this and I'm of that and I believe this and I know the church doesn't believe that. We ought to be saying the same thing. We ought to be mending our nets and setting the arm so that there's no tear in that beautiful garment that was worn next to the body of Jesus. And we ought to be thinking about the same things and coming to the same conclusions. So let me finish. Let me just tell you that there are areas that the Bible does not address or make clear, but where it's clear, we must stand with the truth. We must stand with the truth. Through the years, there's been people that left us because they didn't like our position. As long as they don't dislike us because of our disposition, I'm okay with that. I don't ever want it to be our disposition. As long as it's our position they don't agree with, that's acceptable. But we've got to be kind and considerate. Three things for you to remember. Number one, hold the truth firmly and opinion loosely. Hold the truth firmly and opinion loosely. By the truth, I mean doctrine. By opinion, I mean preferences and style 
in things where the Scripture doesn't specifically address or where it's not clear what the Scripture addresses. Hold the truth firmly and opinion loosely. Listen to me, church. In the, 20, in the 21st century, in 2022, headed toward 2023, the world is going to do everything to divide us against ourselves. We have to be saying the same thing. We have to be mending our arms and our nets so that there's no tears in that beautiful garment that Jesus wore next to his body. We have to be thinking about the same issues and we have to be coming to the same conclusions. Number two, are you listening to me, church? Make the main thing the main thing. I remember Ted Lewis. Ted Lewis was a friend of mine. I was the youth pastor at Mount Vernon Baptist Church, and after a Sunday night service, we stood outside the auditorium in one of the hallways, and we were having this big debate over whether there'll be tears in heaven or not. I was of the opinion there won't be. He was of the opinion there will be. We weren't arguing. We weren't fussing with each other. We weren't going to make some doctrine out of it, but we were having this big debate you know, I was, what, uh, 20, 21, 22 years of age. I was just stupid. <laughs> because whether they're tears in heaven or not isn't the main thing. Do you know what the main thing is? Well, Paul lays it out, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is the gospel? It's the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and that salvation is available to anyone who will receive it. Make the main thing the main thing. What's the main thing, folks? The main thing is getting people saved. The main thing is bringing people under the sound of the gospel. Are you all with me? The main thing is seeing to it that those who get saved follow the Lord in believers' baptism and get plugged in to a life group and begin being discipled, to begin growing up in the Lord Jesus. We're here to make disciples that live in love like Jesus. That's the main thing. And number three, and finally, agree to disagree agreeably. You know, there's sometimes that there's things that we just don't have definitive scripture about. And there are some things where Christians, good Christians, have disagreed and differed on over the course of <laughs> centuries. They're still arguing over them centuries later. Can we just agree to disagree agreeably? Can we just acknowledge, you know, sometimes... You know, this, we're arguing over foolish questions here. It's really going to matter one way or the other at the end. God's going, to, God's going to set you straight sooner or later. It isn't going to matter. You know, and we, get, we learn to get along on those issues that are a matter of opinion or where there's a matter of debate and where the Scripture doesn't speak clearly to them. Why? Because the church has to work together as a team. Do you remember 1980? 1980 was uh, two years before I came here, so I was 23 years of age. I'll never forget it. It was the year the United States hockey team won the gold 
in the Olympics. You remember what the call was by Al Michaels? Al Michaels said, do you believe in miracles? Yes. You remember that? If you don't remember it, go watch the movie called Miracle about this United States hockey team. The incredible thing was that the Russian, Russian team was dominant. They held all of the medals. They held all of the gold medals. They had played a match against the, the professional hockey players prior to the Olympics and had soundly beaten them. And Coach Herb Brooks was going to have to bring together not professional athletes, but amateur college athletes to play on that team. They came from different parts of the country with different backgrounds and, and had different colleges. On one occasion, Herb Brooks says that he asked the question, he had all the men to sit down and ask the question, who do you play for? And he said every one of them yelled out their college team. <laughs> he knew that had to change. And there was an exhibition game and there was a half-hearted effort. It wasn't good at all. They wouldn't win anything. They were seated number 12 in the tournament. They weren't predicted to even win even get close to winning. They were seated number 12 in the tournament. But you know what he did, Herb Brooks did? He had them do iron sprints after that exhibition game. I don't really know what iron sprints are, but I don't think I like them. <laughs> iron sprints on their skates until he says they were totally exhausted. And then he asked the question, who do you play for? And one of those young men, the first to speak up, said, I play for the United States of America. And he said, from that point forward, they began blending together. They began coming together as one. They began working together as a team. Their energy contributed and maximized the ability to do what they didn't think they were able to do. And they beat the Russian team, and then they won the gold medal beating the Finnish team. Not the... F-I-N-I-S-H-E-D, the Finns. They beat the Finnish team. Hey, listen, there is nothing and there is no one that can stop God's church when we come together in unity and we say the same thing. We refuse to be the one who tears that precious fabric of unity. We learn to think the same thoughts and arrive at the same conclusions about the truth of Scripture, and we blend our hearts together, we can change this tri-state. We can change America. We can change this world. 